I should probably start this, shouldn't I? Um, <coughs> I wanted to try to keep myself constrained. Um, Mark wanted me to talk to you a little bit about the book of James, um, and in particular a passage in James that is troublesome. Yes, I will. I don't have a lot of air, so I, I do that because I'm conserving and I shouldn't. I should just take a break every now and then. Um, so anyways, that's what we're going to do. Uh, James chapter 1, <clears throat> and I actually don't have the text open here. I'm just going to read the first, I guess, nine, eight verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So our first notification just came in on the phone, and it was the one telling me that our webcast had started. (laughs) Hopefully it didn't mess it up. All right, Uh, James. This is probably the earliest book written in the New Testament. Uh, He's the half-brother of our Lord. It was very Jewish in its emphasis and in its writing style. Uh, He was a Jew, and he was writing to the Jews who were dispersed, the believing Jews. There are many illustrations and allusions in the book that are, or I shouldn't say are, but could be lost on the reader if they didn't take this into consideration, the fact that this, who it was written to and who was writing it. You have two, two, two men, a rich man and a poor man. You have the fig tree, the olive, the vine, tumultuous waves, ships on the seas, horses needing a bit and bridle, grass that withers, first fruits, the reapers, the husbandmen, the early and the latter rain, Abraham, Rahab, the prophets, Job, Elijah, they're all mentioned. The two great commandments, adultery and murder, are both used, now those aren't the two great commandments, but they're both used literally and spiritually, uh, both toward God and toward man. None of these illustrations were chosen for their poetic value or randomly. They all tie together. And in fact, the whole book ties together in such a way, it's so tightly tied together that it's hard to, to, to outline it. I've tried several times and I've failed. I just cannot seem to get an outline for the book of James. It's, it's a book that has a lot of threads that run through it, but it's, it doesn't lend itself to a this or that, this then that type of Western mindset. It's an Eastern mindset in the book. It, it just kind of flows. And so as you're reading it, you'll pick up on something and it'll take you along and then you'll pick up something else and it takes you along further. That's just kind of the way the book of James works. It is a wonderful book. Um, and many of you know I've spent a lot of time in the book of James. It is a tremendous glimpse into the loving heart of our God. It has been very sadly misunderstood and maligned. And I think mostly due to misunderstanding, just not understanding what is being said. 
I was talking with Sam the other day, and I, I don't remember what it was he asked me, but we were talking about something, and I was explaining to him something from this book. A verse came up, and, and after going on about four different rabbit trails, I just looked at him and I said, I have a hard time talking about James without talking about all of James. <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons why I said what I did when I started. I don't want to run down a whole bunch of rabbit trails. I want to try to stay focused on what we're about. So these first verses are what I'm going to be speaking about. <clears throat> Um, and I think that that idea that I'm putting before you is the reason why many people have approached the book of James as if it's a, a New Testament book of Proverbs. There's a lot of short, pithy sayings in it, um, but it's not that. It really isn't that. It is full of wisdom, right? There's, there's no doubt about that. There are many of those short, memorable statements, but there is one overarching theme, and it's really hard to miss it once you get a hold of it. Uh, tonight, I want to try to discuss just the first few verses and to do so in the time allotted. And like I said, it's Mark's fault. Uh, the first verses of the book are amazingly precious when you stop and consider what he's saying. The setting is one of temptation, but we can miss what's being said here if we just kind of skip over it. It's familiar, so it's easy to do that. But the picture is one of desperation. It is not just any temptation, but a temptation designed to undo you. A temptation that comes upon you suddenly. The word fall in the Greek actually has the connotation of falling right into the middle of something. Being surrounded. The word temptation can be used of a general trial adversity. <clears throat> trial or adversity. But here, I think it has the idea of enticement to sin. Or at the very least, a situation that can be, or that can very directly lead to sin. James actually goes on to describe the process a little later in the chapter when he says they are, when they are tempted, when they are drawn away and enticed. A study of the words used for trial, tempted, and temptation are very instructive. And I, I don't have time to go into it right now, so I'm not going to, but do it. Take a look at it. Um, so it's a horrible thing that has befallen the one that is being spoken of. Um, and they need help, and they need it fast. But he also says there are diverse temptations, temptation of many kinds. So I think it is an open-ended type of thing because there are truly many ways in which we can be tempted to sin. But I think the context of the entire book is that of interpersonal relationships and an area of our lives, interpersonal relationships that is rife with pitfalls and opportunities to sin. I think the point of this first statement is that the temptations come from all directions, and they come in all shapes, and they come suddenly. And often we find ourselves surrounded. And without the divine aid, we would certainly find that we are no match for them. And this is the beauty of this passage. James paints this awful picture Right? But he starts by saying, count it all joy. Joy? <laughs> James, did you read what you just wrote? Joy? This is not joyful. This is terrible. But he goes on and he tells you why. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. I'm going to mention this just in passing, but notice he does not say, be joyful. He does not say, feel this. He says, count and know. 
This is an action of the mind. We are to believe something, to reckon it to be so, even though everything in the outward circumstance says it is not so. That is the trial of your faith. The word count it literally means highly esteem the temptation on account of the joy it's going to produce. You must reach out beyond the temporary to the eternal. You must believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It is this action of the mind that sets the whole thing in motion. We must believe that God is good. And even though this temptation has seized me, I can know that, 1 Corinthians 10, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And isn't this just what James is telling us to do? If any man lack wisdom, wisdom for what? Well, I need to get out of this. I need to get through this. And at the very least, I need to suffer it in a way that is godly. I need divine wisdom. I need his help. So we are told, if this is us, ask God and he will give. The word translated abundantly or sometimes generously is interesting as well. It has a matter-of-fact feel to it. It means in simplicity. There are no strings attached. He just gives. You ask, and he gives. Very similar thought to that that our Lord expressed when he said, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. There is no hint of a failure to provide here. It is simply ask for it, and God will give it. He will give you what you need in abundance. But as if that is not enough, he adds that this gift will also come without upbraiding. I think the ESV has without reproach. But again, the idea there is that he will not chide. He will not rail. He will not taunt. It will not be thrown in your face. It will just be given to you. But look what he says next. It gets better. He tells us why we should count this as joy, as if the fact that God is good to us and helping us in it is not enough. He goes on and says, the trial of your faith works patience. And that word patience is literally cheerful endurance. James is not telling us to grit our teeth and get through the temptations and trials of life. This is rising above and triumphing in them. Let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And the word perfect and entire, and I can't go very long on this, but those two words are almost identical in their meaning. Perfect is a sense of the perfection of, or the completion of, I should say, the man in his moral character. The word entire is completion in every part. And so he's saying, this is going to produce in you the mind of Christ, right? The, the perfect man. This is, this is going to produce in you the very thing that God has said he's going to do until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to continue that work. And the trials and the temptations that we go through, that's what they're doing, right? So you see, God does not tempt us. James makes that very clear later in the chapter. His aim in allowing these things in our lives is to give us a crown of glory, not to destroy us, but to prove and strengthen our faith in him. The ultimate goal of it all is expounded more fully by Peter and by Paul in their epistles, most likely. And I believe that James was first, so I think they were expanding upon what James had alluded to 
when they later wrote in Second Peter, oh, let me catch my breath, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, following almost the exact same path as James in Romans 5 said, and don't miss this, because I think Paul actually is expanding on what James says. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory... In tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience. And the perfect work is now going to be put in front of us. That patience works experience and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So the end in view is this shedding abroad of the love of God in our hearts through this process of patience working experience and experience then producing hope, which then, you see, it just moves on. Verses 2 and two through 5 tie directly back or forward to 12 through 18, and it really completes the thought. James circles back there and exposes the difference between the one who has faith in God and the one that does not. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Do not err, and I'm skipping a little bit. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The one that endures in faith sees the blessed face of a good father directing these things to their benefit. He sees behind the frowning providence a smiling face, and beyond the temptation, eternal joy, and he rejoices. The one that does not grumbles and blames God and can only see him as the cause of the trouble and as a harsh and unloving master. Do we not also read in the Gospels, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? So we're being presented with a very wonderful picture of the willingness of God to help us in our temptations. And I don't want to gloss over the fact that the trials or temptations that we face are serious matters. They are thrown in our way by an ungodly world, a destroying devil, and a treacherous, sinful heart. They are designed to destroy, to kill, and to throw down. This same word, temptation, was used to describe the interactions of our Lord with the devil in the wilderness. He was tempted of the devil for 40 days. The Pharisees also, when it spoke of them trying to trip him up, they used the word temptation. They tempted him, right? 
So this is not a happy thing. It was a perilous thing. The devil meant to undo him as he does us. But the word used for trial, and this is what I was referring to a minute ago, in these texts is a different word. It means to prove. Like the merchant testing the gold to see its value, he does not mean to destroy, but simply to prove its worth. It is a very different thing than that of temptation. One is an enticement to your destruction. The other is a proving. God uses the temptations to try us, to prove the work that he is doing in us. And the end or the terminating point is this shedding abroad of the love of God in our hearts, this crown of glory, the entire perfect man, and the partaking of the divine nature. Who can understand that? The partaking of the divine nature. So how can we not be joyful when we can see that these things are truly meant for our good? So that's the backdrop. James is setting out to tell us something, and this is how he begins. The theme is beginning to take shape. Temptation and how to joyfully overcome it is the first thought he puts in front of us. The context of the book of James is temptation. And we have a wonderful picture of how God of how our good God is right here at the outset. But then it seems to take an awful turn in the next two verses. There is this wonderful promise that if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us without hesitation, without qualification, and that his end in all of it is to do us more good than we can even really imagine this side of eternity. But there is that awful word in verse 6. But... A wonderful, heartwarming thought. And then, but. But. Let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. The ESV has it. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. So it would appear that James is saying all this wonderful joy is yours. But only if you have perfect faith. Only if you have pure faith. There can be no admixture of doubt. There can be no wavering of any kind. God will absolutely reject your prayer. Now you may say that's extreme, but if the Greek word diakrino means doubt, as the translators have translated it, and that is what you are left with. I know that many a sincere soul has struggled with this, and perhaps there is one here tonight that is praying for a loved one or a situation in their life, a temptation, and they are without that perfect kind of faith. And they are at the point of just giving up in prayer, feeling that they fit the exception rather than the rule, that they just waver too much in their hearts. And because of this but, they cannot expect God to answer them. That would all be true if diacrino meant doubt, but it does not. There is hope for the doubting soul in this text. Think to yourself, is this the testimony of Scripture? Did Christ upbraid the father that brought his tormented son to him for healing when he said, I believe, help thou my unbelief? Did he turn him away and say, until you have faith and do not doubt, I will not hear you? Did he just leave the disciples in the boat and let them drown when they were afraid and of little faith? 
because he would not hear them until they had this confidence. Did he tell Thomas to hit the road and not come around again until he had unwavering faith? No, he did not. Because that is not what this text is saying at all. It is saying that we must have faith in God. The scriptures do tell us that we must come to God believing that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The scripture also tells us that which is not a faith is sin. But when we begin to look at our faith, rather than at the Savior, we lose. We lose. We lose every single time. The invisible nature of faith makes it impossible to see. We color it and blow smoke upon it to try to see the faint outlines of its laser-like light. But all we accomplish is filling the room with smoke and obscuring the object of that faith, uh, the object that faith lays hold upon. So we have here two conditions. The first is that we must come in faith. Do we believe that God is good? That he means to do us good? Or do we fall into the category of that one that blames God? If the latter, we will not have the answer to our prayer. We must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder. But honestly, if we're going to him in prayer in this way, it almost goes without saying that we are believing that he can and he will help us. But really that second phrase, without wavering or without doubting, is the more troublesome of the two. It seems that he is qualifying the faith of the coming one and saying he must not have any doubts. James is a book about two prayers. There's bookends at the beginning and at the end. The, faith, the, the prayer of the one that will never be answered and the one that will always be answered. But more is it about the two types of men that pray those prayers. The book opens with the prayer that will not be heard and it ends with the prayer of a righteous man that is effectual and avails much. So what is this second qualification? It is not a qualifier of the faith of the man, but of the heart of the man that is praying. The word diacrino and the story of how it got to be used as a word to express doubt is, a, is an interesting one. And I don't have time to get into it tonight, but the word was never used that way until long after this epistle was written. The meaning of the word diacrino when James wrote this epistle was to discern, to decide, or to separate. Robinson's word studies has to discriminate. The Cambridge Greek Testament for schools and colleges has to be in a critical state of mind. Another said it means free from divided motives and divisive attitudes. The word is used 19 times in the New Testament and is used in the following ways. And I wish I had the time to look at all these verses. I don't. I'm just going to read the references and tell you how they're used. Acts 15.9 and 1 Corinthians 11.29. To separate, sever, to make a distinction or a difference. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, to make, to differ, distinguish, prefer, confer a superiority. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one and 1 Corinthians 14, 29, to examine, scrutinize, or estimate. Matthew 16, 3, to discern or discriminate. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, to judge, to decide a cause. Acts eleven two. I was going to say judges, <laughs> Jude <laughs> 1, 9, to dispute, contend. James 2.4, and Judges, Jude 1.22. That's really weird. My brain is not working. To make a distinction mentally. And I got all of these from uh, Bill Mounce's uh, book on the, I can't what you call it now, the 
what do you call those? The books that have all the words in them and the meanings. Anyways, it's his stuff. I'm stealing it from him. There are only a few instances where it is actually translated as doubt. And this is the primary verse where that is the case. And sadly, it was a mistake. It is a bit more than I have time for, but the meaning of doubt did not come about until much later and is traceable to misinterpretations and early translations that created doubt out of thin air and not to the literature of the day or to some kind of semantic shift in James' mind. If you want to read more about it, I do have a scholarly article that you can take a look at. I'd be happy to give it to you. Um, I'm not going to get into any more of it tonight. In fact, um, just a chapter later, all right, James himself uses the same word, and it's rightly translated partial. Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? So what is James saying then? I think it's one of two things. Number one, you must come to God without a contentious spirit towards God. And I think you could make the case for this based on verse 13. Do not come to God blaming him for your trouble. Or two, do not come to God with a partial superior judgmental attitude toward others. And I actually think it could be both. But I think the latter is the more likely based on the rest of the book. James is saying, in essence, if you come to God with this attitude in prayer, God will reject your prayer. The whole rest of the book is an exposition of two men. The rich and the poor. The humble and the proud. The one whose prayers are answered and the one that is rejected. This book is not about works. It's about prayer. Do you love your brother when you pray for him? Or do you come with a superior attitude? Poor so-and-so. They are less than me. They do not keep the law the way I do. They are in the wrong. I am in the right. This trouble I am having with them is because of their sin. I am righteous. I keep the law. My doctrine is so much purer than theirs. God help them to be more like me. Do we not read elsewhere? Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I think this book could be an exposition of this parable. I'm sure some of you are saying, well, that is all fine and good. (laughs) What about the next clause? If it is not doubt, why use the imagery of a wave of the sea and being driven with the wind and tossed? Well, I've alluded to this before in my message on Psalm 48. So if you want more references, go look it up and listen to that. But the Old Testament has many references like Isaiah 57, 21 that says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt where the wicked are compared to the sea. Basically, I think the allusion here is to the wickedness of his disposition and to the fact that the man that comes in this way is being driven by his outward circumstances. And I do not think that it would have been lost on his Jewish readers. The man that comes to God in prayer with his partial critical spirit is here said to be like a wave in a troubled sea, driven and tossed up and down wherever the wind blows. 
There is no inward control. There is nothing other than the circumstance that dictates the direction of this man. And it's very unlike the similar illustration of chapter 3 of the ship with that inward direction and a very small helm that is able to navigate the tumultuous seas. They're all connected, guys. (laughs) Everything's connected in this book. The next verse says a double-minded man. And it literally means a double-souled man. A man of two natures. A man of two hearts. A man that wants to look like he is godly, but is inwardly selfish and self-seeking and unstable. Basically, the illustration is not one of doubt, but a comparison to the wicked. James is saying this man that comes in this way is a wicked man. He is a double-minded man, like the man of Psalm 12, a man of two hearts. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. The man that draws near with his lips, but his heart is far from God. He is two-faced, a Pharisee. James then rolls right on in the next verses to comparing the two men. The two men that you will meet in this book, the poor, humble man whose prayers are heard, and the rich, wicked, proud, double-minded man that will not be heard. So brethren, as we go to prayer tonight, let's do so knowing that our God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He stoops to hear and delights in our childlike expressions of faith. But also know that if we think that we will be heard when we come with a critical spirit, a partial spirit, a proud heart, we are mistaken. Philippians says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves.